Please stand as you're able for today's New Testament lesson from the book of Acts, chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. At that time, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine all over the world. And this took place during the reign of Claudius. The disciples determined that according to their ability, each would send relief to the believers living in Judea. This they did, sending it to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Gary, thank you for reading our lesson this morning, and greetings to all of you in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, we're grateful, Laura, to you and to Casey. Casey, thank you for leading us in prayer, and Mason and our praise team for leading us in marvelous worship. And a special word of greeting to those of you who are online with us. Uh, we're dismissing our pre-K and kindergarten children now uh, for their time of worship, but as they go with Miss Gwen, we wanna say how special it is today uh, I don't know how it is where you are, but it is an absolutely beautiful fall day today here uh, with the trees in color and to be together on this All Saints Day, to be in your homes with you and to worship with you and to share God's word with you. What a privilege and what a joy it is to welcome each of you and those of you in person as well. We're continuing, as you can see uh, by the logo on the screen before us with our series called With Open Hands with a text, Gary, that you read for us that I find to be very fitting for all saints. It's a story of how the church was engaged in shared sacrifice, shared service, congregational care. As a group of believers in one region hears the concern of brothers and sisters in another region, they pool their resources together, they work together to relieve the need through open-handed generosity. I think this is the church at her best. I've always believed in almost 40 years of ministry that when people of God, when followers of Jesus know the need, we will work together to meet that need, whatever it is. This is what saints do. By the way, it's interesting, isn't it, that the word saint in the Greek language, you know what it is? It's hagios. H-A-G-I-O-S, hagios. It's not about being flawless. It's not about being faultless or perfect. The word hagios literally means in the Greek, one who is different, one who is distinct, one who is unusual, one who's set apart. I think I can say with a degree of certainty that as disciples of Jesus who are called of God by his spirit, we are called to be different, to be in the world without being of the world. And here's some good news for you if you didn't know. You don't have to be an angel to be a saint. Isn't that good news? Can you say amen to that? You, you don't have to be an angel in order to be a saint, but you do have to be different. You have to be unique. I think it was Nelson Mandela who said, a saint is simply a sinner who keeps on trying. I love that. I think it's true. 
So the setting in the text that we've read today is in Antioch of Syria. Now, you know Antioch. We've talked about this city before. It's a diverse cosmopolitan town, which was the third most important city in the Roman Empire. It came after Rome and Alexandria, the third most important city city was Antioch, about a half a million in population. We know from the book of Acts that the Spirit of God was moving in Antioch. The church was growing like gangbusters in terms of number and spirit. In fact, it was there that we were first called Christians. Little Christs is what that means. It was not a term of endearment. It was a term of ridicule, actually. And Acts chapter 13 says that there were teachers and prophets in Antioch. Prophets are those who, of course, can see the future. They can foresee that which is to come. And they're also able to read the hearts of people. And one of those prophets is remembered by name, Agabus from Jerusalem. He predicted a global crisis before it happened. He predicted a worldwide famine to come, and it happened just as he predicted. It was Josephus, the first century uh, Jewish historian, who later would verify that this famine occurred during the reign of Caesar Claudius who ruled between the years 41 and 54 AD. The famine affected Egypt, we know from historians. It affected Greece, it affected Rome, it affected Judea, and in Judea especially, it was oppressive to the people in Jerusalem. In fact, there were many people in Jerusalem who would literally die of hunger and starvation during this predicted famine. And so in response, it hadn't even happened yet, But in response to the need that the disciples heard about in Antioch, they determined that according to their ability, each would send relief. I love that word, relief. Each would seek to relieve the need of the believers who were living in Jerusalem in Judea. I think that verse is noteworthy for this reason. Antioch was nowhere near Jerusalem. It was 310 miles away. It was in a different zip code, a different region, with a different racial makeup, different ethnicity. The church in Antioch was mostly Gentile, and the church in Jerusalem was entirely Jewish. But though they were vastly different from one another, they had one thing in common, their devotion to Jesus. That's all they had in common their confession in Christ, their allegiance to the Lord. They had all been saved by grace. And this one bond, this connection, made all the usual divisions and distinctions between them irrelevant. They heard the need, and they were determined to do something about it. And this was true not just in Antioch, it was true across the church, it was true in Corinth, it was true in Philippi, it was true in Galatia. Now it's interesting that another emperor named Julian the Apostate, three centuries later, would complain, it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, And the impious Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. It is disgraceful that all men see that our Roman people lack aid from us. 
there was something different about the church. Mother Teresa of Calcutta said it like this. Listen to this. Intense love does not measure. It just gives. Intense love and devotion doesn't just meet out measure. It just gives. Laura and Casey and others of us, some of our lay people attended recently a large church gathering in Kansas City. In the meeting there, we began by lamenting. There were about 170 senior pastors like me and sister churches, large churches. There were other young clergy like Casey and Adam, other associates like, like Laura and Leslie, and then there were key lay leaders there. And we began our session, there were about 800 of us, just by lamenting about the struggles of the last two years. The pandemic, some predicted that it was coming. We didn't know, we didn't expect it. A famine of health, a famine of fear, a famine of separation, (laughs) a famine of isolation, a famine of political polarization, a famine in the last two years of racial division and tension and disunity, a famine from, let's face it, life as we once knew it. And you add to that sort of corporate loss, this personal grief that many of us have suffered over the loss of our loved ones, wherein we have lacked closure in many ways because our funeral services and practices were so restricted and so limited. And this has been so heavy. It's a pandemic. In fact, even now, we've suffered in recent days from supply and demand, from Afghanistan, from the Waverly Flood, you name it. The last two years have been full of lament, and there is a time to grieve. Recent surveys show that our churches, our local churches, are still between 20 and 45% of our pre-COVID in-person attendance, and we're a part of that. We're 35% in person as we were pre-COVID at BUMC, and yet, and yet if you look at our online attendance, we're at 140% of our pre-COVID participation, nearly 2,500 people. So the Spirit, even in the midst of the famine, has enabled us to adapt our witness in ways that we never thought possible. Even in our stewardship, we're nearly 100% in our pledged giving, We're down in our non-pledged gifts as we expected, but we have managed our stewardship well and God has provided. At the same time, our strategic missional partners are strong. Did you know that last year, just you all, in terms of our South Africa ministry, supported 450 students and teachers with their sponsorships and that we're on track to do the exact same and maybe more this year? that in our healing housing ministry, and Olivia here is here who founded that uh, in 2016, 17, we have now celebrated uh, ministering to over 350 women. Over 100 have graduated from that program. And there's Harvest Hands with underserved folks in Napier, Sudicum area of Nashville. There's Christian Youth Ministry Training, Middle East Initiative, and they're all strong in a famine. How is that possible? It's possible because when the people of God see the need, 
we are determined according to our ability to meet the need. That's what saints do. That's who we are. Esther 4.14 was right. For such a time as this, we have been born. That's fitting, I think, that next Sunday, the week after All Saints, next Sunday, we're going to have confirmation on Sunday afternoon. Can you believe we're going to confirm 93 of our middle school students who will stand here at this altar and make their profession of faith in Jesus Christ One of the things that we love the best around here during confirmation is to interview our students. And the pastors have had an opportunity in the last couple of weeks to interview 93 students. I interviewed about 24 last week in groups of three for about a half an hour each. And here's what we always do. We always, I always ask them questions. Pastors ask them questions about what they believe, what they've studied. And then they have the opportunity to ask us anything that they want to ask, and they can ask some doozies. I had one of them a couple of years ago ask, how much money do you make as a pastor? (laughs) You ever get nervous when you get up in the pulpit? Some Some of the most interesting questions, there was one young man last Tuesday, it wasn't as much a question as it was an observation, He said, Pastor Davis, I've been reading the Bible a lot lately, and lately I've been studying Samson, and as I read about Samson, it seems to me that God calls a lot of jerks into ministry. And I said, I resemble that. I've noticed that too. Why is that so? (laughs) And we turned to 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and read... Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were noble. But God chose the foolish things of this world, even the jerks, and makes them saints. That's what God does with sinners. A saint is a sinner who keeps on giving, keeps on trying. You don't have to be an angel to be a saint but you've got to be different. God, in his infinite grace, chooses unusual, bizarre, peculiar, obstinate clay and reshapes us into something pliable and purposeful. I think it's Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, that says God makes all things beautiful in his time. And so he does. How special is it on the week before we bring in a new flock of students as they begin their faith journey that we today call the names of those who have finished the race, who are this morning a part of a cloud of witnesses, the communion of the saints, or as Bishop Pennell calls them, the balcony people. They've left fresh footprints for for us. The Atlanta Braves won the series, the World Series, last week. I don't know if you're aware of that, but I want, want you to know that. I'm a lifetime Braves fan. My hero growing up was Hank Aaron. As a little boy, I used to listen to the transistor radio as Milo Hamilton and, and Ernie would call the game. And Sherry and I were at Truist Park last Friday night for game three. At the beginning of the game, something happened that was very moving to me. Billy Aaron, that is Hank's widow, 
came onto the field, and when she did, the whole stadium rose to their feet and celebrated this man's legacy with a standing ovation. It went on and on and on. And I don't know about you, but I find it, even if you're not a Braves fan, I find it appropriate that his team, Hank's team, won the World Series in the first year of his absence. Hank Aaron's number on his jersey was number 44. The Braves were 44 and 44 when Ronald Acuna, their star player, was injured. The Braves won 44 games before the All-Star break. They won 44 games after the All-Star break. They won the World Series on the 44th week of the year. And they played the whole season with the number 44 displayed on the center field grass. Turns out there are angels in the outfield. But I tell you this story because somebody asked me the other day, you watch the series on TV, you saw it in person, right? I said, yeah. They said, which is more stressful? Watching it on television or being in person? And I thought for a minute and I said, I have to say, it's much more stressful watching it on TV. And they said, why? And I said, because when you're there in person, when you're surrounded by 43,000 of your friends who have a common connection, cheering for the home team, you cease to be a spectator and you become a part of the game. It occurs to me that what the home crowd is to the Atlanta Braves is what the communion of saints is to us. If you have a pulse today, you're on the field. But if you look around, the stands are full, loaded with those who have finished the course, and they're cheering us on. And I think that their intercession is the difference between victory and defeat. In fact, it reminds me of Hebrews 12, Therefore, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. So let us lay aside every weight, every sin that entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. It's like having the home field advantage. We're surrounded. One last thing in the text. I want you to notice that the believers in Antioch don't mail in their gift. They don't FedEx their aid to Jerusalem. What did they do? They hand delivered it. They took it in person through Barnabas and Saul. In fact, sharing in person is part of the gift and that's how it is with saints. The real gift is in the relationship. They see a need and they meet it in person. And that's how it is with the saints of God. And you don't have to be an angel to be a saint. But you've got to be different. C.S. Lewis described it like this, and with this I close. 
C.S. Lewis in his classic Mere Christianity describes the saints like this. Listen to this. Every now and then one meets them. Their voices and faces are different from others. Stronger, quieter, happier, more radiant. In fact, they begin where most of us leave off. They are recognizable, but you have to know what to look for. They'll not be very much like the idea of religious people, which you have formed from your general reading. They don't draw attention to themselves. You tend to think that you're being kind to them when actually they're being kind to you. They love you more than others do, but they need you less. They'll usually seem like they have a lot of time. You'll wonder, where does it come from? And when you've recognized one of them, you'll recognize the next one more easily. And I strongly suspect, though how should I know, that they recognize one another immediately and infallibly across every barrier of color, sex, class, age, and creed. And in that way, says Dr. Lewis, to become a saint is sort of like joining a secret society. To put it bluntly, it must be great fun. This morning, we are players on a field, and in just a moment, we're going to stand to honor the cloud of witnesses, the saints. As we call their names, we will ring the bell, and we will give thanks for their life that in Christ's love will never end. Thanks be to God.